The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. across the world have waxed and waned like the tide, but who knows what undercurrents lie beneath that can snare the unwary with unexpected primal force and drag down towards disaster. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and bone shard, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. This evening's presentation is Peter Weir's 1977 Australian mystery drama, The Last Wave, starring Richard Chamberlain and David Gulpilow. My guest is writer and biographer Simon Guerrier, and you join us overlooking the beach on a suspiciously gloomy day. Hello, Simon. Hi, Jeremy. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I am just blooming. Oh, excellent. Well, in that case, what can you tell me about Peter Weir? Well, this is interesting, because I thought I knew Peter Weir's career pretty well. Um, and yet this film was completely new to me, so clearly I didn't. Um, I am, I know uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock. I know The Cars That Ate Paris. I know his later uh, better known work. Um, and he's generally, uh, what I, I, I suppose what Peter Weir is probably best known for is giving really good roles to actors who want to show they can do something a bit different. And he's done that time and again. Yes, that's a very good spot, I think. Um, and so generally with his films, you know you're going to get something interesting and something that will stay with you. That's that's kind of, I think, what unites the, the body of his work. Absolutely, yes. Uh, I remember years ago, well, a few years ago, I was woken by a phone call on a Saturday morning, um, relatively early, and it was my sister. And for some reason, she asked me about Peter Weir. She needed to know about Peter Weir in a hurry. Okay. And I prided myself that in my woozy state, I was able to give some kind of rundown of his work and the uh, themes of his career. Right. Excellent. <laughs> whilst in the prone position. Yeah. There's a re- there is a recurring theme of like existential traps characters who are trapped in situations that institutions keeping them locked within okay yeah in i think a lot of his earlier film it's the uh the the habits of white australian society sort of the class strictures mm-hmm. of picnic at hanging rock of the last wave to an extent of his next film the plumber which is about a a plumber who wrecks someone's house but they're unable to actually confront him because of the the class gap between them right okay and then later on you have the boarding school of dead poet society you have the Uh the 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 studio town of the truman show and the royal navy of master and commander all these sort of ongoing trap situations yeah 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 okay okay yeah I, i i will go with that and Australian cinema in the 70s I think is absolutely fascinating because there's they're always uh, even though they're 
they're films being made by the establishment. There's an outsiderness to them mm-hmm. because there's always an awareness that white Australians are newcomers to this land, that the land is foreign and alien and powerful. Oh, I think I think there's something else going on, which um, so you had wanted to interview me a while back about this and I've put it off and put it off because I've been busy writing a book and I've been writing a book about a guy called David Whittaker who was the first story editor of Doctor Who but in 1971 he moved to Australia and so weirdly quite a lot of the stuff I've been writing about and researching pays into this film that I've just watched for you not least the fact that it was co-written by Tony Morfitt and Tony Morfitt and David Whittaker both wrote two episodes of a series called Elephant Boy, which was filmed in 1971-72, as part of a kind of effort to build the Australian TV uh, industry. And and so you've got, uh, as I'm sure you know, um, there were two uh, governments in succession, the Gorton government and the uh, Whitlam government, uh, 68 to 71 and 72 to 75 and they were really keen to support the Australian arts and get over what's referred to as the uh, Australian cultural cringe right. and um, and that was basically that Australia would import its culture its TV, its film, its theatre its opera, all of these things would come in from the old world and from America and it was true of what you saw on telly, it was true of what they put on in the ballet theatre and whatever and in the late 60s, early 70s there's this sense that Australians should be doing it for themselves and telling stories about Australians written by Australians for Australians. So you start seeing things like quotas for Australian made television in uh, the early 70s, becoming a real thing. And so people like David Whittaker were basically employed to train new generations of Australian writers, actors, all of this sort of stuff. So um, the the Australian film critic Margaret Pomeranz, really well-known figure in Australian film industry, and plays, I think she's Guy Pearce's mum in um, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Oh, right. a kind of, you know, it's kind of like getting Barry Norman in to do a cameo in, your, <laughs> in With Nell and I. That's the kind of equivalent as, uh, that I could think of it. She was one of the students on David Whittaker's screenwriting course in 1973. There are uh, various other people uh, who, who applied for or did that course or associated with it. And so... What's happening is, so David Whisker was involved in the various film corporations and film support funding things. He was reading, he's being paid $50 a time to read screenplay ideas, uh, storyline ideas, full screenplays and whatever, and and recommend whether they should get Australian government funding and stuff. So there's a good chance that he read some of Peter Weir's applications Right, um, but but what you and, and so you can kind of see this thing. It's sort of early to mid seventies. This kind of explosion in Australian-made television about Australian issues and Australian-made film about Australian stuff, and there's a lot of it. And a few people have talked about you know they're, 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 I've read a few things that have been a bit sniffy about a lot of this material. Um, there's a phrase called osploitation. Oh, yes. Which is, you know, uh, there's also uh, uh, what they refer to as the kind of ochre stream of, uh, mm. of storylines, which is all, it's all a bit rough and ready. It's all a bit cheap. 
uh, cheaply made, cheaply produced, cheap production values. You can kind of see people are learning, having fun, kind of working out. Can, you know, can you actually get anything made is as much of an issue is what are you going to say and what are you going to what are you going to address? But they want to deal with Australian issues. They want to deal what they're what they're creating within this work is a sense of Australian identity and culture of its own because that was lacking and it, and a lot of Australian culture was imported and and was basically imposed upon them or well, that was the kind of feeling. Um and I've talked to a few people who are involved in this and stuff and 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 then within that mix that kind of heady mix of stuff going on and things getting made and you could get funding and if you could make a film cheaply you could probably get it done within that mix there's good stuff here and there there's some stuff that seems to resonate that seems to go somewhere and most excitingly of of all might sell abroad and suddenly there's a sense that the direction of travel might go the other way and peter weir that is exactly the cusp that he is on and and things like picnic at hanging rock are part of there's a number of films you know which can talk about but there's a number of things where you go they are reversing the flow of cultural traffic uh and that's an extraordinary extraordinary thing to see in context let alone what this film is about what it's trying to address what it's trying to say what it's dealing with that maybe it's not entirely conscious that it's dealing with you know it's it's kind of troubling at some issues that it may not have an answer to and that in itself is interesting so so genuinely i thought right i finished all of this research i'm doing i'm now going to watch this film oh i can see exactly where this is springing from well i'm glad you're able to get a book out of all the research you did for this podcast I mean, it's, <laughs> it's uh, terribly convenient yes um I mean, I, it is one of Weir's lesser-known films, certainly, and it, um, it was, I think it was supposed to have distribution with United Artists and internationally, mm-hmm. but they turned it down, and it wound up being re- released as Black Rain in the US, um, even though it has such a big star as Richard Chamberlain. Well, and you can see that's what they... You know, like the number of British movies that have an American actor... yeah wodged in there to kind of deal with the distribution that's not always a guarantee of success uh it's not always a guarantee of distribution it's not always a guarantee that you'll get recognized in fact as you know i'm sure you and i can agree there are quite a lot of british films where the american actor star is the least good thing about it <laughs> um uh, uh, so, since we've been talking about uh, uh david whittaker i would cite subterfuge the uh, movie that he made in they start they filmed it in 1968 with uh, gene barry in the lead and oh. joan collins as support um and it wasn't released until 1971 and i think that tells you everything you need to know about the problems of that movie mm. Um, but but Chamberlain is is really good in this, and and it's a good it's a smart bit of casting because as I said, it's classic Peter Weir. Before this is what becomes known for of going, I'm going to give this guy that you think you know a role where you don't know where this is going to go and what he's going to do, and it will show you a different side of him. So I can see why Chamberlain went, yes, please, I'll do this weird film, um, mm. and. Um, and the distribution, I think, 
all of that is because it's early days as well for Australian films going out into the world and, and, and all of that stuff. What, what I mean is I don't think necessarily any of that is a judgment on the f- what's in the film itself. It's part of a whole bunch of other stuff as well, let alone that it's a weird film. Um, mm. the, the, the fact that it's an Australian production, regardless of how commercial it might be, within that Venn diagram it's still going to be weird to the to the international distributor just because it's Australian yeah yeah even, and, and... even if it's like a perfectly normal like drama or a audience friendly comedy it's just going to have that hurdle to overcome before but, anything else and there's no you know there's very little precedent there's very little systems in place of how do we work this out how do we work out you know, who gets what share of profits and all of the, all of those kind of really boring logistical things ha, are, are worked out by doing these kind of things lots. And so when you're starting out, you kind of, you make mistakes or you, or, or things get agreed and then turn out to not be the best idea and all of that stuff that you learn by doing it. Um, this is kind of going to be part of. One last film I wanted to mention is a, like a keystone of the whole thing, as far as I can see, is Wake in Fright. Mm-hmm. from 1971 which was lauded as um uh, a great a great work it was uh directed by ted kotcheff i think yep he'd started out working in the uk and then moved to australia wound up weirdly directing both first blood and weekend at bernie's yeah kotcheff's uh, career is fascinating yeah um he have I got this right? He's one of the Canadian emigres, isn't he? Oh yes, Canadian, of course. And um, so he uh, he's mates with Sidney Newman, who was the BBC's head of drama in the mid sixties. He, um, you know, all sorts of things about that. But he he kind of moved. He was part of a wave of Canadian and American um, director producers who came to the UK because they were freer to make stuff without all of the. Um, but basically, uh, uh, Alvin Rakoff, another uh, Canadian director, part of the same sort of generation, who um, wrote an amazing memoir. I'm I'm just the guy who says action uh, a couple of years ago, which is well worth anybody's time. Um, he basically said that that because of the way that drama was sponsored in the US by advertising, you didn't want to do anything that upset the sponsor because you'd just get pulled. So drama tended to be quite safe and bland. You're also in the shadow of House and American activities. So, you know, canny people like Rod, uh, right, Rod Serling, who was a mate of Alvin Rakoff's, basically went, well, I'm going to put my drama... I've come up with a drama series that's a remove by being sci-fi, but I can address all the stuff that I want to address in contemporary drama by putting it into the twilight zone and that allows me to come at things at an angle where people won't notice that a lot of this is quite political Mm. whereas his contemporaries all moved to the uk and were working on kitchen sink dramas and this sort of stuff Mm. um so kotchev is yeah and then and then he moves to australia because that seems to be the place now that british drama has become quite established and quite set in its ways australian drama 
promises something raw and exciting that that British drama used to have like 10 years before that that there's definitely a kind of I'm not sure that's true but I think that was the sensibility in the late 60s early 70s but um, Wake and Fright was hugely acclaimed when it was shown and then it vanished and it wasn't until five or six years ago that it actually resurfaced and was re-released and got its first proper release in the UK Wow. Wow. Yeah, I, I've not seen it. I only know it by reputation. I was, able, I was actually able to see its, its first British cinema release about four or five years ago. Wow. Uh, so it was a brand new Donald Pleasance film. Wow. And it's, it's, it's very tough to watch. I mean, it, partly in literal terms, because there are scenes of um, animal hunting and, and animal violence yeah but also it's surprisingly edgy in in terms of content there's inference of um gay sex between yeah, yeah. the main character and pleasance's character in a film from 1971 yeah this is that so there are a number of things here one of which is that a bit like in uh, 68 69 when the lord chamberlain no longer had to review no longer had to approve anything put on the British stage. So effectively the end of censorship on the British stage. You suddenly have a slew of violence and sex and nudity on stage and whatever, and it kind of follows. Um, I can't remember the exact details, but I think in 71, Australia got an X rating or the equivalent of an X rating. And so similarly, you get this slew of basically people pushing what they can do and seeing what the boundaries are and seeing what you know kind of just throwing everything at it um actually you get that you can see examples of that when itv got its first franchise in the uk and there were two tv channels in the uk you see itv drama doing a whole load of things that are edgy and some of them frowned upon some of them are debated in parliament like um there's a drama where they tell some of the story through news reports so you cut to what looks like a news report presented as real news if you came in halfway through the program you'd think that that was a real news report and there'd been a disaster so things like that there then had to be rules about um and you can see why if you'd worked in television drama in the late 50s and that there'd been no rules and you'd been able to do what you want 70 71 in australia began that is where you know that's the that's the wild west where yeah. we could do what we liked and it'll be like the old the you know the golden days and whatever and also they're actively after anybody who knows how to make this stuff and can teach us what to do so there are incentives to go and we go out and have a holiday in australia and have a laugh and we can make something a bit wild and exciting so i i totally get it i totally get this kind of this kind of um uh uh What's the word? This kind of atmosphere of excitement and energy, this kind of punk sensibility, I think, that's mm. going on. Ironically, of course, Wake and Fright is maybe the worst advert for Australian tourism you will ever see. <laughs> but but also, it's kind of revelling in the idea that Australia is dangerous and quirky and whatever, mm. which is kind of part of this cultural cringe thing of that they're kind of embarrassed of themselves, you know, because this is the kind of stuff that, 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 that they're told as well, that they're a bit backward and whatever. You can see in portrayals of Australia in other things, 
that this is you know there, there, there's a um there's a tv show from the 60s which is all about it's all like a variety show but it's a vehicle for an australian star um and it's all jokes at australian expense so they talk about australian culture cut to a bit of film of some sheep in a field and mm. And they talk, you know, they talk about what, you know, what Australia, a cultural evening of Australia is. And they all get out these massive kegs of beer. And it's kind of like that's that's going out as sort of early entertainment Sunday viewing in the in the UK. And then they're surprised that that show that they made didn't sell to Australian television because you're like, yeah, just imagine putting that out in Australia. It's just so rude. But you, But there's no sense that on the part of the people making programs like that that they're doing anything other than lightly joshing, you know, mm. it's, it's so, so that kind of sensibility of, a, you know, a, a lot of this material in the seventies, I think, which is what makes uh, uh, the last wave so interesting. A lot of this material is about how nasty, dangerous, violent, untethered, australia is you know and you can see that in hang picnic at hanging rock this sort of th- sense of threat it's in mad max it's in um there's something very uh uh for all um walkabout is supposedly a paradise there's something very threatening all the way you know there's something very strange and unnerving about a lot of it mm. um and i think a lot of these things are all are all posited in that so so yeah a horror film I can I can see why these kind of horror films and thrillers and unsettling things is what they went for. Well, the last wave starts with a scene of uh, uh, tribal painting on uh, an overhanging rock, a hanging rock, ironically enough. It's almost a visual pun. Um, And the camera settles on the image of a, a cross within a circle as we hear the sound of thunder in the outback. And uh, in a small village uh, in the middle of the desert, there is suddenly this almighty downpour. Uh, Water coming in through the ceiling of this uh, local tin shed school. Huge hailstones the size of bricks coming in through the window. And, I mean, as I've written, there's a visual theme of water, but... There's there's water almost in every scene in some way that it's yeah. this constant ever present insidious power. Yeah, I think I think there's a number of things there. One is that I think yes, it's a theme. I think I think that and the kind of what affects it. What, what effectively we're watching is weird climate makes this film feel really resonant now. Mm. Um, the thing that it's a extremely hot, sunny day without a cloud in the sky, and then suddenly there's a downpour and then crazy hail. I'm kind of like, yeah, that's the weather we've been having the last few weeks. Yeah. Um, so what would have been remarkable and supernatural now feels much more credible. Um, but I also think what Weir is doing and his team are doing in that... There used to be, I'm not sure it's quite how film making is taught and film theory is done now, but there used to be a thing that film was about juxtaposition and juxtaposition of what you can see and what you can hear and juxtaposition of cuts 
and juxtaposition of storytelling. And so what you've got is a whole series of juxtaposed kind of wrongnesses that there's there's sudden you know it's a hot it's a, the the a thunderstorm in the outback is not how things are supposed to be the the storm that comes on a cloudless day is not how things are supposed to be and and they rush into the school and that's supposed to be safe and then they're attacked in the school by these huge chunks of ice that actually cause some you know gash somebody and there's blood and whatever so it's this kind of um it's very striking it immediately grabs your attention it's really odd but it's also i think a kind of fundamental of you know this is how you make a film and they're kind of working from that premise so what i mean is that i think it's got a kind of um straight out of film school feel about it uh i th- i that would be my bet that that's that's the kind of stuff peter weir had been learning about mm. well we're introduced then to our our lead character uh david burton uh presumably having just wangled himself a car <laughs> there's a reference you could explain in the footnotes it's <laughs> quite a long time to explain um is he still alive the uh, the other david burton the real one I think so. I think oh. so. He was he appeared in a documentary about ten years ago. Uh it's on one of the Doctor Who DVDs about his uh, time as Doctor Who that mm. nobody's ever seen. Yes, um that, that definitely happened. Well it's yeah, I, I I find it fascinating. Um uh bearing in mind that I wrote a uh I mean this is a yet another segue, but I wrote a uh trailer for Matt Smith as Doctor Who in twenty twelve. Um, and there was a thing that any, I think the idea was that any country that bought Doctor Who to broadcast it, Matt Smith would record a little quirky thing of going, you know, watch Doctor Who on, hi, I'm Doctor Who, watch Doctor Who on ABC or whatever it was. And um, there was some back and forth over the one for Turkish television and getting the character right. And I ended up writing it. So it was a little piece by Matt Smith to camera. And then I left BBC Worldwide. I went off to become a dad and never heard anything about it again. And then I was, you know, and I kind of asked people, did that ever happen? Did whatever? And then during lockdown, so like 10 years later, somebody just sent me a YouTube link to it. And I was like, I wrote that. And it's nuts. But, but, um, but yeah, I can totally get that that kind of thing of yeah i i worked on some doctor who and no you know and then it didn't happen you know may, maybe he did make a whole pilot and it does exist somewhere but um I, I don't know what's madder that that he made it all up or or that it does exist well, it's uh that's a whole other podcast series i'm sure yeah yeah sorry sorry yeah. they love they love they love their true crime don't they yeah yeah cut cut all of that if you want but um <laughs> yes <laughs> So anyway, his name's David Burton. We got that far. Um, um, And as he's leaving his office, he's greeted by an Italian colleague who's got a a gift of uh, pepper. Yeah. So so this is um, it's funny. I I wasn't sure what to make of this. I mean, the point is that it's to show that he's a nice guy because he gets on with the little people. That's Mm. that's basically what that is. It's the same thing as in the opening of Die Hard when Bruce Willis sits in the front of the car 
with the driver. And that shows that Bruce Willis is is a man of the people. Well, it's it's the save the cat moment. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's the yeah. Thing, it's the thing that demonstrates to the audience that your protagonist is a likable person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, but also, it's really. It doesn't he say something like, you know, I've never had a yellow pepper before. Yeah, which, which is just wow. You know, that the, the, the these exotic things was that, um, was that a delicacy in nineteen seventy seven? Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's it's kind of like you know. Do you remember how amazed people were in the mid nineties by? Um, Lychees? No, tomatoes. Uh, 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 oh. Sun-dried tomatoes. Sun-dried tomatoes, that's it, yes. Do you remember how I, I amazed actually, yeah. people were in the mid-90s by sun-dried tomatoes? That was the thing. And, and uh, uh, yeah, it, so I, I wonder if it's partly that. It's also something about a mix of cultures of, of Sydney, which I think this is where this is set, Yeah. Um, though some of it was shot in Adelaide. Um it's about Sydney being a melting pot for different cultures. And that is important because there's also a thing that Chamberlain is American and is there. You know, they don't pretend he's Australian. So there's this kind of idea of, of lots of different people and he gets on with people and it's different types of people he gets on with as well. You know, it's across a class divide. All of those things, I think, are in this little scene. Mm. Um, he... Um... He sits in an angry traffic jam on his way home, and I, I note that I love the music of the film. It has this wonderful, gentle portentousness, but it sounds like water. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. There's sort of the the um, percussion sounds like drips, and it's 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 constant all the way through. That you you can never get away from this elemental sense. He comes home and has dinner with his family and it's all very nice but then they notice water coming through the ceiling and it turns out that the bath's been left running and there's water pouring down the stairs but none of them remember turning the bath on yeah and that's odd because i think that's um that's an example of where i feel the film is trying to have it both ways if it's ob- you know you can play the gag of oh we think it's something you know something horrific and weird and then it's oh no the children have left the taps on or his wife has left the taps on because she's come down the stairs to greet him or that kind of stuff yeah. then you're kind of then you're kind of playing against the horror and it's like a gag but we know there's more to come whereas as it is it's just this kind of unresolved you know well is that part of his visions is that part of it's just it just feels kind of unconnected. If if I was editing this as a, you know, here's the screenplay, I'd be like, this is, this needs picking up a bit or, or um, addressing, because nothing like that happens again. You know, you don't have the same kind of mysterious um, things in the household, like the kitchen overflows or whatever. Whereas if it happened in the house again, somewhere else, like the toilet overflowed and flooded water or whatever, it would feel like that. So it's, it's a weird thing of invading the house or, 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 or whatever without without going anywhere with it. Hmm. One of the uh, uh, one of um, Weir's basic ideas with the film was what if a rational, um, incredulous person suddenly had a premonition? Yeah. And when I read that, I thought, well, that's 
that's almost Russell T. Davis's pitch for the Second Coming, which is what if an atheist discovered he was the Second Coming of Christ? But it's it's it it's also pretty much every M. R. James story. The the Akata, yeah, that's true. The, it's a it's a classic of a ghost story thing of the the non-believer who comes to believe. That's what Scully is in the X Files. That's what. Um, other examples are available, but but all, all of that kind of thing is a, is a classic uh, um, foundation of a of a good spooky story. I might dispute the comparison to Scully there because she's continually finding ways to rationalise everything. But I think the idea was: what if you are given no choice but to believe? Yeah, yeah. That you cannot yeah. deny that whatever supernatural thing is real. You can't explain it away as something else but, but but also that serves a function because if you have a skeptical character and you persuade the skeptical character to believe you ought to take the audience with you that the audience will buy what's happening because this character takes some convincing um whereas if you have a very credulous character we're not necessarily going to believe what they see or re- believe or whatever we're not going to know so much that it's in his head his attempts to rationalize it and to kind of explore this give us a reason to buy into what's happening i think Mm. to misquote fox Mulder, he doesn't want to believe yeah first yeah yeah that's very good very good um david also starts to have strange dreams he has a vision of a figure standing in the rain in the middle of the night and um then goes to a barbecue uh, sometime later with with friends, and there's a comment on how expensive fish is getting. Yes, yes, and and I thought there's a number of odd things with that because it's his because it's his it, brother-in-law or someone like that, isn't it? Is it or his father-in-law or so, yeah? Is it is it his stepfather who's the vicar? Yeah, his, who was a, a a reverend? Yeah, yeah. So so he is a believer. And the implication is that Chamberlain isn't, and the implication is that there's some kind of divide in in perspective between them. Hmm. Um, and um, and the barbecue, which you know, is a sort of a stalwart of a of a Australian cliche, you know. But 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 yeah. nevertheless, so that idea that the fish are threatened itself, it just introduces that idea that something's wrong with the sea, um, which I think you know is 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 quite nicely done. Um, also that um david's wife is sunbathing and that kind of sense of that you know the climate's not right and you know the weather's not right maybe i'm just reading too much into it but i thought her out in the sun just immediately goes is something going to happen is is you know can we trust the sun can we trust the weather um it just felt what's the word i thought that that worked really nicely in just being what's ostensibly a very straightforward scene that you get in any drama and yet because of how it's been set up we read more into it and are kind of waiting for things to go wrong Mm. david describes how he used to have terrible dreams when he was a boy and that um, he thought that at night taxi drivers drove people around when they were asleep and that was why you woke up feeling tired yeah and that's that's such a uh, an evocative image. I can't help thinking if that's something that we're dreamt or uh, or was related to him from someone else's dream because it's so specific. 
but so strange. Yeah, it's also a very urban yes. dream, which is who he's a man of the city. And it's that idea that the city is in itself a bit strange. So there's a kind of divide between the urban and the rational and the uh, 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 rural or the the tribal, as they call it in the film, and the, the, and the more spiritual. But actually, that idea of the dream is that, is that the city is a weird space in itself. Um, which, I, yeah, I really... Yes, you're right. And it's, again, it's that thing of kind of going... It's just unnerving enough to keep you intrigued. So it's, yeah, really nice bit of... Uh, bit of writing i thought mm. uh, meanwhile an aboriginal man is climbing out of a, a a waterworks or a sewage works yep seemingly scared out of his wits and is is chased and uh, confronted by uh, a group of other aboriginal men um uh, because he's apparently a thief and um Eventually, there is a, one of the uh, the older members of the group points a, a shard of bone at him. Yeah. So, but so before this, they go to a pub. Oh yes. Well, there's the pub, a there's a rock show on. Yeah. There's a band playing. What, what I think is some sort of Irish folk. It's not my area, so I may may not have the specifics of what the music is right. But I think that is um, visually telling us what is later said which is that the black Aboriginal Australians living in the city are part or are basically homogenised with the white working class, Irish immigrants and so on. It's kind of that idea of grouping them together. They are not clearly entirely homogenised. Their attentions are there or whatever. But that's kind of the idea. It's, it's kind of showing a class divide, but different groups within that divide, I think. Um, but the um, the man's body is found with his heart having simply stopped. Yeah. And the, the group is arrested. And David gets a phone call saying that his name has come up for uh, legal aid work whilst he's been in the middle of playing tennis on a Sunday. Yes, it, it, that is odd, isn't it? Um, and I think that's, again, attempting to make it as... trying to up the juxtaposition as much as possible. So that it's it's as far removed from his his life and his sort of sanctuary mm. to go into this. Also, he then tells them that my field is corporate taxation, which is a really odd thing. What? Why he of all people has been assigned? How how's he going to help? He doesn't know that bit of the law. So um, yes, it's a bit odd. Um, also, the uh, the other thing that we've uh, not mentioned is in the scene where the guy, the Aboriginal guy, is killed. Just before that, he's silhouetted in the light, very briefly, but it's the vision that David saw in his dream. Oh yes, and that I thought was beautifully done. It's very quick. It's not really signposted, and it's just a. Uh, and if you get it, it's really effective. And I just thought that's a really that's a really classy bit of uh, writing and direction um well it's meant david mentions that he does have experience representing uh aboriginal australians because uh, he's previously dealt with issues of land rights yes that's true that's, you're absolutely right yes um so he and so he has a 
he's worked with them before. He has a, a, a good working relationship, at least. Yeah. And he heads into the office in pouring rain with the street flooded. Um, but um, he interviews the men and they are strangely evasive. He says, mm-hmm. oh, he, he died. He had too many drinks and, and fell and drowned in the puddle. And uh, at home, his wife is reading a book on Australian history. Yes. So, so there's a, there's a number of things here. I think I think they pack in again a lot of um, quite nicely done ways of suggesting a, a richness to this world that we're in. So, um, David has a, another lawyer colleague, Michael, who is much without being rude. He's much less sympathetic to the men who are accused, who thinks they should all plead guilty without any other uh, uh, thing. And there's just a sense, and the police are quite brutal and whatever, there's just a sense of a kind of underlying racism there without anything being particularly on the nose, which I thought, again, I thought was very... um, uh, uh, Nicely done, and then obviously the the man he's seen in his dream walks in, um, which is Chris, played by David Gulpilil. Yeah, um, and he brings him home to dinner. Does uh, does he? Is it, is, is it that a little later? I may yes, you may be right. Um, um, he uh, David asks whether or not there are any tribal aboriginal uh, australians in sydney you're right you're and right, yes. they said well no no well, no of course there aren't i mean how would that work yes because because these are city people is the line yeah. that they say and and that is really important because it's the, the idea that because they've moved to the city they've lost their connection and the point is as we're going to discover they haven't but neither have the rest of us and david's hasn't lost his connection either or, or, or regains his connection. And I think that's what this is really all about. But um... Um, David sees uh, that uh, Chris is standing outside and is holding a, a, a stone with markings on it and then wakes that find it's a dream. That's right, yeah. Um, but the marking on the stone is the same as in the opening sequence. And I've, my next note is Australian Exorcist. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I. Yes, I can see that. I mean, um, it's a good starting point for a comedy sketch. Obviously, <laughs> T- turns up silhouetted with corks hanging from his hat, and that. Yeah, yeah. Nice. But, nice. Um, but in terms of be, the Exorcist is a, is a is a similar concept of someone who exhausts every possible scientific explanation for something and then has to turn to the supernatural yes i um and surely they must have seen it oh i don't doubt it yeah yeah but it, but the, that core idea is very similar but obviously the story and the treatment is totally different. oh yeah the city setting i think is very important as well because it's the uh, the urban person um in the the modern um profession mm-hmm the kind of person to whom these sorts of things never happen yeah 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 um david starts investigating and um, finds that billy the dead man was trying to uh, make money Mm -hmm. and he also reads a story about tribal killing 
um, and the importance of tribal law, mm-hmm. but sort of is, is unwilling to accept this because they're in the city, yeah. and these things don't happen in the city. Well, the, uh, the sense is that outside the city, there is more weight given to self uh what's the word uh, not self-policing but se- self, self-determination self-determination through their own traditional laws that's that that's seems that, that i i think that's the distinction being made when they refer to them being when they refer to groups of people being tribal what they mean is there are different laws that su- apply whereas in the city they have to abide by the laws as everybody else hmm. i think i think that's the distinction being made but there is also a sense that tribal culture in Australia in general has been um, not eradicated, but certainly very heavily tamped down by the whites. Mm. And that, I mean, there, obviously there's historical precedent for that with the um, the abductions uh, early in the 20th century and the uh, edu- educating mixed race children separately I, and all that kind of thing well i, I think you know when, when we get to the dinner scene david's wife says as if it's a question they can answer i you know she says i'm a fourth generation australian and i've never met a, an aboriginal person before and and i think that is really important in understanding the significance of the moment when david then offers them charlie and chris drinks and they turn down wine and beer in favour of water because there was a kind of um, a bit like with Native Americans in the States. There was a kind of, there was a kind of racist assumption that, that, that there was a lot of drinking going on and whatever. Mm. Um, yeah. And, that, you know, I, 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 all of those kinds of things. So it's, it's kind of in that moment of them turning down wine and beer, they're kind of pushing against that cliche and making a connection and a, 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 a thing, which I think... I don't know. I, my my impression, uh, what uh, what all of this made me think was, I don't know the context of this well enough, either then or now, and I'm kind of observing a a cultural clash that I'm not part of. Uh, so it's fascinating, but I'm kind of aware there's a lot going on here that I'm not entirely privy to, um, in a way that. What's the word? I, yeah, I, there's a lot. I can kind of see there's stuff going on here that I'm kind of like, I, is that is that pushing something? Is that saying something? But there's a discomfort about it and a guilt about it, which I think this is kind of probing and, and trying to get to grips with what what um, what the relationships are, which I just found really interesting, though I'm not sure I'm really able to... Um, I don't feel I'm able to judge it, but I found really interesting. David thinks that they should plead guilty for in, in return for a lighter sentence. Yeah. And when Chris, the man from his dream, appears, there's a moment where he and David have a, a kind of sense of connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and David invites him to dinner. And there's a, there's a sense of connection in that Charlie is a painter and so is David's wife. So they kind of have that moment. And then David is keen to show them his family albums. And there's a sense of connection where Charlie sees something in a photograph that he seems to respond to. Um, 
so you have this kind of sense of um and he asks about um clan territory and there's kind of this sense that there's more in common than there is different um and then and then there's this line the law is more important than just man and stuff and that kind of idea that 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 they're coming at the same issue but from different perspectives mm. i thought i thought again was all very well well handled i thought all, was all nicely um not too pointed not too um on the nose um charlie picks up on um david's stepfather being a reverend as well yeah that he is that in in david's culture he is a holy man yeah that's right and he asks him about the about his uh clan land so they're each is trying to talk to the other on their own terms that's right yeah to let to kind of level the playing field but they're not they're not meeting in the middle there's still that disconnect even if they're they're both trying to communicate across this divide um and also charlie doesn't speak english except he clearly understands it because he responds to things that David says. And then later we discover that he does speak English. That's odd. And again, my script heads ahead is just going, we don't need any of that. Um, you could have had, they assume Charlie doesn't speak English and so sort of speak over his head a bit. Hmm. Um, but as it is, it just feel, it just feels like a, 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 an unpolished bit. Um, it's it, it, it again it feels like uh, Charlie isn't prepared to make that level of compromise to talk to the white man in his language he will talk to the white man in his own language yeah and, yeah, the, I guess. and the white man can speak in his and Chris can be the intermediary yes and it's only, yeah, okay. and it's only later once Charlie has more of a sense of David's true persona that he's prepared to talk to him on equal terms and appreciate that david does not speak his dialect so speaks to him in english it's it's almost a sign of their the change in their relationship over the course of the film okay yeah yeah all right all right yeah i'll go with that um billy is said to have taken or seen and taken forbidden things mm-hmm um, and Charlie talks about dreams as a way of communicating that they act as the shadow of something real, um, which ties in, I, I think, to the the concept of the dream time. But also, I think, is psychologically quite um, accurate. The idea of dreams being reflections of reality filtered through a person's anxiety and neurosis. Yeah, and that they're revealing. Yeah. Um, and so we then get... David has another dream, this time where his Charlie is stalking his house. And it's much more threatening um, after this kind of uh, detente that they've had over dinner. Um, and then there's this line that really struck me. You don't know what your dreams are anymore, which is basically what the um, kind of film is about, that David has to kind of recognise what his dreams are. Um, but I found that really, um, that idea that he's, because that immediately flags back to, it immediately picks up on what was said earlier by his stepfather about David having these weird dreams when he was a kid. 
and you suddenly get the sense of oh i you know what what's happening is that you as the viewer are do, making the connections um which i just I, again i just really like as a as a um sort of structural thing the viewer is always the last part of a film's production it's the the viewer's job to pe- to fill in the gaps that the filmmaker has deliberately left to make the connections yeah i think yeah yeah but i but I've, i was kind of like i like the fact that i'm being given space to do this um, yeah david lynch is very good at this i think yeah he gives you just enough to work it out but you really have to work at it i remember yeah. when i remember when mulholland drive came out he printed a bunch of clues in the newspaper to help wow. viewers understand it and it was just and it was like watch this particular thing how many times does this item appear within the film yeah 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 i did a um it was lost highway i was studying film at the time that lost highway came out and went to see it with a bunch of friends who came out baffled and were then it's you know it's very rare this happens but my knowledge of film theory basically was able to go this is what it's doing it's all about how identity is constructed from the things we see and hear but we don't see and hear everything of a person's life so if your identity is only constructed by the bits that you see any any wrongness off camera becomes really debilitating and and weird because it doesn't fit and so it challenges who you are so you've got all of these people who are only what they appear on screen and yet there's other bits of their lives that don't fit at the moment i got into kind of that kind of end of stuff um yeah they basically called the police but uh you know Oh dear. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it and everyone stood up and cheered and ca- yeah, oh, carried, if, carried you out of the bar on their shoulders. If only, if only that had happened. Uh, no. Uh, yeah, I, it, well, it was a kind of thing of going, actually what I've been studying does give me an insight into what is, what this is, how this all connects up. But um, yes, the validation was, uh, was yes, yeah, I think they were, I think they were quietly impressed. Mm. No, they didn't I mean, cry. When I saw Lost Highway, I... I really didn't know what to make of it, but I was really, I really wanted to work yeah. it out. It wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to just just dismiss it as all oh, that's nonsense. I thought, well, there's there's a way this fits together. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah, a yeah. there's a there's a key. Um. Chris tells uh, David that there is a secret, and to know it is to die, but that he also thinks that. David is Mulkurul, a member of a tribe from across the sea. Okay, yep. Um, David goes to see the barrister and he says that uh, they can plead not guilty. Uh, but um, the barrister then drops out and calls him patronising. It's a weird one because I think, you know, I found the legal bit the least interesting bit of this. Um and uh, it's all, you know, because it, it, it's playing towards a conventional courtroom drama, which none of this is. So, you know, you, yeah. by, the, by this point, we kind of buy that there's something supernatural going on. I don't really care about the precedent of case law. Um, it, that all seems a bit superfluous. What's much more interesting is David going to the museum to get a second opinion. And um, he's advised by Mrs. Mangle from Neighbours. That's, that's just fantastic. Oh. 
I, I, I wasn't a sufficiently early adopter of Neighbours to make that recognition. Ah, well, that, that is the amazing actress Vivian Grey, uh, also in Picnic at Hanging Rock. Um, and, uh, yeah, she's a... I mean, I think in Neighbours she was introduced as a, a fairly minor character and just took the thing by storm as the villain. Um, and would basically had a kind of uh, ongoing war with uh, one of the one of the lead characters, Madge in Neighbours, um, to just you know, it's just one of those things that that she just lit up the whole soap um, by being such a nasty, bitter uh, mm. uh, character. And she's great. She's such a and such a great actress. Um, and she's and this is a really fun little you know the exposition part in anything is no fun. And they've made this sort of quirky character and you just go oh yeah that's a great again just that exposition stuff could have been really boring because it's there to serve a purpose and yet they've made it a bit of a bit more interesting than it needs to be um so yeah great um he shows her the um the symbol that he saw in his dream um and it's the symbol of the mulkerel um who is reputed to have prophetic dreams of natural apocalypse. Yeah. Like through rain. Yeah, so it's all it's all kind of joining up the dots and validating what so far has been a sense of misgiving. It's mm. kind of telling us this is what's going on. Um and and yeah, as I say, it exposition is always really boring. Actors don't like it. Um because it's it tends to be very uh, uh you know, you can't really inject anything into it. Um, and yet it, this is written in such a way that, that, you know, it feels like a conversation between two real people. So. Mm. The best exposition I find is the kind that is able to be entirely nonverbal. If there's a way of showing characters discovering things. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, or, or you know, minorly verbal in some way. But um, the, the ways to try and sort of combine plot theme and character so that i find if you can weave them together then the exposition flows naturally out of the other elements yeah there, and you don't the... just have scenes of people explaining things to each other well you know it, it's it's scenes that read that scenes that read on the page like powerpoint presentations that's what you want to avoid oh yeah and, and there are times when you can't really get around it you know a classic example is um in the original star wars film there's a scene early on at Ben Kenobi's house where he has to tell Luke the history of his dad and whatever. And what what Alec Guinness does brilliantly is to suggest what what you've basically got is Luke is really keen to hear it and Ben Kenobi is a veteran and doesn't want to say it because it hurts. And so there's a real emotion in that scene. By the time you get to the Star Wars prequels, they can play that scene as if Ben is lying because he seems so hesitant to say what happened. So there was a trailer, I think, for Revenge of the Sith, where they showed a, a version of that scene with Ben looking like he doesn't know how to answer the question. And you go, but that's all because they've mastered how to do that bit of dull exposition by just going, by making it as emotional as possible. By weaving it in with the character, by making it a character scene as well as... An yeah, info dump. yeah, 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 and and you know th- that's the problem. How, how do you get around the info dumps? And and emotion is usually the best way to do it. 
Mm. Charlie is seen outside David's house. And the, later on, there's a party on the terrace. But it's very, very windy. Yeah, I, th- I think the Charlie outside the house thing is a, is a misstep. Mm. Because um, basically, David's wife is threatened by the prospect of a black person outside the house. You know, um, And that he's been around for dinner. Yes, David had a dream where he was in the house, but has he told her that? Has he shared his with his wife this kind of misgiving he's got? No. So why is she so terrified? It all seems... And then there's a the prospect of, is he actually there or has she dreamt it? Because when she opens the door, it's somebody else. You know, right, right, it's, it, there's somebody else at the door who hasn't even seen Charlie. So... There's all that thing of, is she dreaming too? Is she not? Is it, you know, and it, then it turns out that Charlie was at the house and whatever. Again, all of that just feels a bit imprecise, just just not quite worked out well enough. Mm. And, you know, more, there, there could be more unsettlingness if he turns up at the house and at the door and she doesn't know whether to let him in and she wants to be polite, but also doesn't want to let him in because her husband's not there. And, you know, th- th- they do that in... Um, Oh, what's his name? Uh, Papa Lazarou in uh, in oh yes the League of Gentlemen. You know when when he's selling pegs at the door and the, and the, the the woman at the door is trying to be very polite, but also you know that kind of tension would would be um, would give it a bit of a, 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 a sort of agency and stuff. But as it is, it's just there's no reason for her to be frightened of him, other than just being a bit racist. Mm. And and that and because that's an unsympathetic position i didn't i didn't really care you know it did it, 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 a lot of this film works because you kind of feel an emotional side to it and that just i just felt that ra- rang hollow their daughter has a dream about jesus and angels in pink satin yes and putting together a lot of what the film is saying it that makes me think that she's having a vision of the Christian version of the end of the world. That it's it's almost very underplayed that she actually has had some kind of divine revelation. Because if David is descended from people who have visions of the end of the world or visions that come true, what would one infer from a child having a vision of jesus and angels in a film that ends with the apocalypse yes yes okay okay that's not how i read it but yes i can see that um i thought it was more a kind of classic horror pull where you think it's going to be something much worse and then actually it's something quite ordinary and mundane and it's just a that in contrast to what david is going through his daughter has had an ordinary odd dream um but yes now you say i can see that um it's almost a more a a more comforting version of the apocalypse with jesus and the angels coming down and saying come on everyone let's all go to heaven and it's all very nice whereas david is having nightmares of floods and and rain but i also think that reading of it sits at odds with the disquieting nature of the film and the final moments of it so yeah i'm not sure i buy that Maybe it's the sort of thing that you put in to say to executive who wants at least to know that the children are okay. But yeah, I'm not sure. I'm I'm not sure. I'm wholly convinced by it. Mm. To cater to the uh, Australian exorcist concept, perhaps. <laughs> yes. 
Um, David follows Chris from his home and has visions of light bouncing off the buildings and also of black rain falling on the cars, which reminded me... I mean, that's uh, it, it turns out to be part of this whole prophecy vision, but it's part of Hiroshima as well. Of, yeah, yeah. Of black and, rain falling on the city after the explosion. That's right. And it's oil falling from the sky, isn't it? And it's... it's um, And we get the exposition of that. We get the explanation of that from the radio, which is a much more functional, much less subtle way of getting the exposition across. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, and you've got the thing that Charlie is a house and he's got the axe and there's a sense of threat there and stuff, which just, and Charlie does speak English, so he's been lying to him. So there's kind of this sense of threat and who do we trust and who do you not trust. Um, and then this extraordinary moment, really arresting of David in his car listening to the, all of this stuff and then seeing out of the car people drowning and the world submerged. Um, yeah, that's and, it's it's that's real nightmare. That's I, genuinely quite upsetting, I think. It's it's really well done, really well done on, on a film that has a modest budget in the 70s with no CGI. I thought that is a... Um, yeah, that's a... And that is the thing I will take away from the film, that... that moment it's just so good and also all of that juxtaposition of it's been a sunny day and nobody can explain the weather and whatever so you're not quite sure if that just happened is this a you know all of that i just found really effective and i just wish more of the film had been like that i think um he follows charlie to uh uh a house in the city and um, after Charlie, after he follows uh, uh, Chris, rather, um, and after he goes, he goes inside and finds Charlie in an empty room sitting alone on the floor. And that, again, that was, it's an unnerving image because it's this, this almost ancient tribal practice in the middle of a perfectly ordinary setting that you would see every day. It's a normal street, it's a normal building yeah, it's definitely i think the suggestion is that it's a down at heel setting it's a it's a you know a, a slum quarter would be the uh um kind of vernacular it's going for in a film noir um mm, yeah but uh yeah yeah and and but but clearly that divide between the city and the tribal that that has been muddied now and we know it's been muddied which is what so that's why this stuff is happening within the house um and again yeah i i, I quite like that. i think um you know the the implication of charlie being outside david's house and all of this sort of stuff is that charlie's a threatening figure and the axe is to suggest he's a threatening figure that's not how david responds to him which again i just feel is kind of like if i was reviewing this i'd kind of be you know red penning that part of the script mm. uh he and david have this a very cryptic conversation david asks charlie who he is and charlie fires it back at david and mm-hmm. get starts getting him to to question his own nature and his own sense of self and tells him that he is mulkerel um david tells him not to speak in court and then drives home in the, in the pouring rain and that's that's when we see the the flooded street that's right yeah, yeah. um when he gets home he arranges for his children to go and stay with their grandmother mm-hmm. and that his wife is to go too because he 
some something is happening that he doesn't understand. Yeah. And he's scared. And he can't explain it to her. And I don't know, I think there's a there's something there about the advocate, the legal advocate losing the power of articulacy that they've kind of missed a trick with. Um that the whole point of him being the rational man is that it's his job to bring order to things and he can't and it's just that would be her reaction you know that would be what have you got mixed up in and stuff again i just didn't feel that quite that i just didn't feel that 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 quite worked for me um the case goes to court yep and the coroner says that billy died from drowning david presents as evidence the death bone which causes people to die and that it's part of tribal sorcery. He asks uh, Chris later if the the secret that he has is linked in some way to water and directly asks Chris if he is a tribal Aboriginal. And he says that he is, that their tribal grounds are the city itself yeah. or the land on which the city stands. Um and and also what's important about that death bone or a pointer bone as it's sometimes referred to is that everybody knows in court what that is it's common knowledge we're told that that this is a tribal belief that these bones have this power so it's not as if it's secret knowledge that is revealed in court that oh they've got this practice that that's what they do even the non-believing white people in the city understand what all of this is they just don't believe it but yeah that that i think is an important distinction it's not a revelation in the way that a normal legal case would go this is how he did it it's more that um they're not making the connection to the spiritual truth of it i think it's accepting that this power this power is real rather that i I mean i it goes back to a familiar story, but the idea that a human sacrifice will um, revive the um, agriculture on a remote Scottish island, perhaps. Yes, yeah, um, yeah, but yeah, it's it, it's yes, that's that's the that's the thing. It's it's the it's the weight placed on it, not the thing itself. Yeah, and and that I feel again, as you say, there are other examples who do that with a bit with a defter touch um hmm. and i just uh, i think i think the problem is that the, the the whole kind of court case thing is a bit of a misnomer for what this is actually about and it doesn't ever really go anywhere there's no there's no, no. there's no conclusion to it there's no verdict yeah. because it's it's irrelevant to the story if there exactly. was some verdict and it was bound into the way that the story resolves or even if it's part way through if it if it pushes the story along yeah, that... yeah if they if they were found guilty and he so he's, he loses the case doesn't he we're told that but if they were found guilty and sent to prison and there was a sense of injustice but actually the sense is more that he's lost the case and he's just a bit despondent um so there's not that kind of uh it doesn't matter very much i, I is what my feeling was um we're not made to feel that it matters very much Billy wanted to be a tribal member, apparently, but broke the tribal law by stealing the stones. 
David's dad visits and David says that he has lost the case. And uh, his father says that he too has been struggling with his faith and that he's he stands in church and explains the mystery to his congregation but he he doesn't get any real sense of that anymore i don't think he doesn't he doesn't feel the power of his faith anymore and then he reveals this extraordinary thing that one of the dreams that david had as a child came true that he he saw his mother's you know he foretold his mother's death basically um and that i thought that that actually i found quite powerful and you know as a as a idea that that that, that of all the people to tell david that he has a kind of uh, ability i thought i thought that was really um interesting and and quite moving and you know just just in in what you want is a sort of slightly chilling thing in a in a unsettling thriller um but again what do you do with that what what you know it it doesn't it doesn't help them it doesn't um i just i just kept coming back to kind of there's this should be you know this is the equivalent of luke discovering that he can use the force um it's it's a much more powerful moment because it explains everything that's been going on yet it doesn't it doesn't drive that forward anyway um and rather than bringing kind of resolution or understanding it doesn't um and why is his dad losing his faith when he's got a sense that his son can see the future you know all all of those sorts of things it's it's that it's that weird um you know if if a miracle has been or or something supernatural has been demonstrated why are you bothered about your faith because it's right in front of you dude well um (laughs) that's that's something i remember talking about on on an episode long ago which is that if you see a miracle, you have proof. And if you have proof, do you need to have faith? Because you have evidence right in front of you. Yes. And there's no right answer, obviously. I get, I get the philosophical, philosophical kind of argument, but I just found that very odd. Just, just, I, I really liked the stepfather going, you know, the, the, you believe. But also, it's kind of like a crossing the threshold moment for characters worldview but it's told by somebody who's a believer but doesn't believe but his job is to explain that actually what you believe is true so all of that kind of thing is it's just a bit muddy um if you were to believe that the prophetic dream came from god perhaps but he doesn't understand why yeah or or even for him to say but i don't think what you've got is part of the religion i'm part of you know, or, or it's not the religion as I understand it. There's something fundamentally I'm not getting, and I think you're close to it. Mm. That drives David onwards to investigate. You know, do, do you know what I mean? It, it kind yeah, of it kind yeah. of better serves. Um, and I find I find that again, I, it's not far off. It just needs a bit of a polish, but the clarity isn't quite there. Um, it's it's the problem with a film like this when you have a character who is a christian minister where at some point you've got to say actually god doesn't exist the aboriginals got it right and their um 
cosmology is is the real one and all the other religions are wrong but but but, but you see they don't have to do that because they could just have the they could have the you know they could have david go to his stepfather we've argued all these years bitterly about what you believe in and now i'm coming to believe things myself and maybe you were right all along and the stepfather could go, well, I don't have all the answers. I believe, but I don't have all the answers. I can't help you here. You need to look elsewhere. And that's a character moment. And that's a, a kind of thing that, that drives him onwards in the plot. All of those kind of ways of tackling this are just a bit clearer on who they are and what they're going on and why he then goes off the way he does. Whereas as it is, it's kind of like, yeah, it... it, it it doesn't go anywhere. So it, it's just for a film that's all about the fact that we're all going to drown in a terrible apocalypse. There's a lot of floundering. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> um, Chris arrives at uh, the house in a huge storm as the, the house is almost being on the verge of being torn apart yeah. by the storm. Uh, to take David to, to to somewhere, and we go into the um, the sewage plant again, and through all these doors and tunnels, and right down into the earth until we're in this huge cavern, and it's it's like the ending of uh, the keep with the the cavern underneath the the ancient fortress, inside of which is hidden away a shrine. The, these these stone pillars. And then there's a shrine uh, in a place that the white man will never be able to find. And then suddenly Chris appears naked and vanishes. And he and the suggestion is he's kind of sublimed, hasn't he? He's, he's yes. gone to join his ancestors. Um, I, yes, I can hear a friend of mine who who is a bit more of an academic of this of sort of cultural appropriation and stuff. And I can hear her very bothered about the fetishization of this. Um, and also part of the issue is that Chris has fulfilled his purpose by bringing, you know, plot wise, he's fulfilled his purpose by bringing David there and then has no role in the, te- in the temple of his own people. Because if he's there, David won't steal anything. It's again, it's just, it's just, do you feel that this is a bit too close to being a white saviour narrative? Yes. Or what it what it or, or not necessarily white saviour, but it's certainly it's all of this all of this is told and understood through the perspective of a white man, but it's not his story. Um and and he's actually superfluous to events because he's involved in the legal case and fails he has a vision at the end and fail what what is it that he's achieved over the course of this other than to understand something that so so it's a it's a kind of um what's the word he's a kind of witness to events without being a a a protagonist in the traditional way because because He's a point of view figure to navigate the ideas and themes of the film. He's a, he's a regular 
uh, Anglo white guy with whom an Anglo white audience can connect emotionally to explore yeah. this this very alien uh, society and culture and belief system. But yeah, you know, he's he's um, so he's the lawyer for a bunch of people who are accused of murder. And the murder, it turns out, he learns and understands in a way that none of his contemporaries do is because Billy stole stuff from the temple. So he goes to the temple and starts filling a bag. It's like you haven't learned anything. You're just um, am I am I missing something there? I, 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 I was kind of I think I it's was... motivation because Billy was motivated by greed. He wanted money. He wants to be a member of the tribe. David wants to prove to others what's happening. He wants to prove that his yeah, his yeah. visions are real. That that something is going to happen. Yeah, but I I also feel that that you know he could ask, um, and it's all it's all a bit that as you say the white savior thing that it's all on him to do this, and actually maybe it isn't, and that. You know, don't go to somebody else's temple and just help yourself to what's there. That's well, that's yeah, quite bad. Of course. You know, um, I mean, I, uh, do, do we need that spelling out? It's it's and 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 he's also, you know, and and when Charlie then appears to sort of confront him over this, and to you get the same thing as when Charlie stood outside his house, terrifying David's wife and stuff, which is it's just assumed that this guy is scary just by his presence that's a really racist kind of attitude mm. yeah and what what is david's response to to charlie intervening he bludgeons him to death yeah is that, what 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 is this you know i i did find it quite difficult to have any sympathy for him beyond that um and it and it just what and all of that kind of stems out of chris's miraculous disappearance if Chris had been there to mediate or to, you know, be, or to be attention or, or for David to actually, for them to actually have the conversation as you describe it, of David saying, we need to take some of this to prove what's going outside and Chris being the one to object and then them coming to blows over it. It, it kind of makes the story something, something about that clash of cultures and mm. that, that about, about the fact that there's a connection and yet there's a difference between them. All of that kind of thing. Whereas as it is, I just, I found it, because I found it fundamentally really, really, uh, at best, I found it unsatisfying. And at worst, there's something really troubling in the way it plays out. I think uh, with with that kind of confrontation there, um, David is David wants to take these things to say, oh, look, to, to prove to people. But the response would be, what is that going to achieve? Yeah. This this will ha- as as Chris might say this is going to happen anyway. What what does yeah, people but, knowing about it in advance g- going to do? But even so, they don't articulate any of that. So so no, it's, it's all just yes. I just yeah. I f- I find all of that very uncomfortable. And you know, compare it to I'm trying to think of something similar. Uh, uh, in terms of visually, there's something. V- moderately similar in terms of people running around underground being chased or, or being under threat to the last episode or so of edge of darkness um when they're in the in the complex and they're being chased oh around. yes and what what's really important there 
is you've got two characters who have clashed and been at odds but have come together. And we know, as they're being chased, exactly what they stand for, exactly what their differences are, exactly what they're trying to achieve. And everything is very clear. And because all of that motivation and all of that sense of their purpose is clear, we're completely with them and it's very suspenseful. Whereas this, I don't really get why he's doing these things or why things are then happening to him as a result or what it just feels like it's in a fug of it needs it it needs to be clearer that david is viewing events through the the prism of his own culture that he if he has visions of a coming catastrophe he's going to try and prevent it he can't acknowledge or accept that this is inevitable that this is the end of the world and it's part of a a whole cycle yeah. as as the as the the tribal characters have this is this is going to happen anyway there's nothing anyone can do it's it's part of the, the cycle of nature and i think the conflict there between these two ways of thinking i think that could that could have been the, uh, a core of the film so so you've talked a fair bit about films horror films like the exorcist that we can be fairly sure probably that the filmmakers had seen and may have been influenced by i think the thing that 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 really got in my head as i've been thinking about this since i watched it is there's another film from the same year which i don't think they can have seen and yet i think is treading a lot of the same ground and that is the first star wars film which is about a civilization of cynicism in which the old religion has power. And there is a guy in it, the, our, our protagonist in that, is a young man who comes to learn and understand that and to wield that power. And, you know, even on the Death Star, there are senior members of the Empire who laugh about the Force, despite the fact that they all serve the Emperor who got into power by using the force and making lightning come out of his fingers. And Han Solo doesn't believe it even exists. Yet it's demonstrable. And this this film is doing something very similar of, of, of that idea of this urban environment that's supposed to be divorced of all of these things. The, the, the kind of power is still there. The energy is still there. And we've kind of lost our ability to see it, but can find our way back to it. And there's something very similar going on there. It's a very mid-70s kind of idea of uh, natural living and wearing, you know, uh, uh, cotton dresses and learning mm. how to use tools again. You know, all, all of that kind of 70s sensibility and stuff. And um, so I think it's all very potent. But I think I think this film is exploring that, but doesn't have a real sense of where to go with it and that's the problem I mean, and we're basically it's basically a chase but it's not going anywhere um and that's you know that's a you know there's no destination for this kind of uh uh this journey that we're so yeah that's it we're set on a journey of kind of exploring david's visions and his powers and stuff and um and yeah it all ends on the beach and he has a vision of a tidal wave and stuff um and that should hit much harder 
but because of this kind of fog of everything before it i just i yeah i just i was kind of like yeah what a shame what a shame um i just i just uh there's bit there's bits of this film where it's really really good and moving and i just found towards the end i i i was kind of like i don't it's just some stuff happening <laughs> i i fa- i think the strength of it might be more in the direction than the writing yes yeah it okay. is it is it is brilliantly directed and i think it's very eerie and disquieting and weir hits on some really potent distressing powerful images and and as you say the music works very well i think the the lighting works very well they've got some really good there's some really good location work going on um i you know i i found myself trying to work out which bits of sydney they're in is that is that the rocks is that uh val clues is that you know the juxtapositions of the geography i thought were really you know were saying loads of things without saying it just by where you've placed your cameras and stuff I thought that was really interesting, but yeah, it's it's the script. It just, yeah, I I just want to go over it with a red pen. I think I can see what might have attracted Weir to the story, given that it's it goes back to the idea of it being trapped. He's trapped in this um, mode of thinking where he can't connect fully with the the Aboriginal belief and the Aboriginal culture. But he is also trapped within this prophecy where he can only be a bystander. He sees what's going to happen and can and can do nothing to stop it. He could go out and he could warn the world and there is nothing he can do. Yeah, I, th- I think I think part of the problem is that what we're, you know, an M.R. James kind of story would basically go, look, there's ancient or, or, or you know, a number of other horror writers or whatever would go, there's ancient wisdom that's been forgotten. And you are it's like the sea and you are completely powerless against it. And, but once you tamper with it, once you dig the thing out of the ground or start asking questions, you are entirely its victim and you're entirely the victim of this fathomless power that is almost unimaginable. You know, that, that kind of whistle and I'll come to you kind of sense of what is it that you're actually grappling with other than a bedsheet, you know, Mm. it, it just, um, that is not what's being suggested here. What we are suggested is there's a riddle that can be puzzled out because he, you know, he had a connection and he can get back to that connection and he can make sense of what it is and they can, what his visions mean something, they're telling him something, but it, 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 it that, that doesn't take him anywhere. He's, he's just as much a victim at the end as he is at the beginning of this. There's no sense that he, he comes to any kind of great, um, What's the you know he he doesn't come to any great revelation about it or anything so it's all it's all um it's all yeah just just unsatisfying that's that's my problem with it um and and it's a great shame and and i'm really glad i didn't watch this in my teens when i watched quite a lot of peter weir's films because i would have been really disappointed by it i think um and I'm just glad he learned from it because because a lot of his later films are a lot better than this. Even Green Card. Do you know? I don't think I've ever seen that. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'll be seeing you again very soon, and oh. we'll be talking about Green Card. <laughs> well, we'll have to see how busy I am. I might be have to write several books. Talk about uh, clash of cultures, Gerard Depardieu in New York. What's going to happen oh, next? <laughs> gosh. 
yeah yeah i you know i might pass on that one um yeah yeah i i, I, I should say i found this fascinating and there was a lot of watching this film where i was like i'm really glad you've asked me to do this because it's there's i'm seeing loads and i'm bringing loads to it from the stuff i've been reading and stuff but in the but ultimately i was just like oh it's it's not quite as good as i hoped it would be um but i think there's still enough interesting material there and it's enough pointing towards things of interest and things of intellectual or psychological material yeah i think that makes it really interesting oh yeah it's, yeah, yeah it's, definitely it is it is flawed as you say but there's 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 a lot to chew on before yeah. you get to the weird hollow center yeah 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 i think you're right i think you're right i think it's um yeah de- definitely interesting and revealing and it kind of opens up some of the as you say you start to be able to see patterns in weir's other work and and things um yeah definitely definitely um so i'm glad i've seen it i'm just not sure i like it hugely oh. I've never found out why it was my sister needed to know so much about Peter Weir first thing in the morning. See, that's another mystery, an unresolved mystery. That's like, uh, it's going to haunt me now. I I lie awake at night. (laughs) Thanks to Simon for making time for this recording. His new book, David Whittaker in an Exciting Adventure with Television, a biography of Doctor Who's founding story editor, is available to order now. Cinema Limbo is on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Acast with almost 120 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on YouTube, on Twitter at Cinema underscore Limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, remember, a dream is a shadow of something real. listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. Thank you.